epistle of Paul to the Roman church. And let's continue our study of uh, this, the, the great Magna Carta of the Christian faith. I, I must tell you that I can barely uh, contain my excitement because in all honesty, folks, I, 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 um, I've hesitated to say this up to this point, but we really, uh, we really come now to a portion of the epistle that is uh, that we, we really begin to wade in with verse 16. And we're, we're there tonight, and I'm, I'm thrilled to get there. There are some things in the rest of Romans 1 that I think you'll find the most uh, marvelously theologically stimulating. At least I hope you will. Let me read to you verses 16 and 17, and, and we'll concentrate our, our attention on verse 16 for the night. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for the righteous, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verses one through fifteen uh, have uh, commanded, gosh, uh, eight nine weeks, uh, and they uh, comprise a section in which Paul devotes himself to introducing himself and to defending at least portions of his ministry and, and uh, uh, assuring the Romans that he has uh, certain rights to be uh, writing this letter to them. It, uh, it has some references to some personal experiences and to his calling as an apostle. But verse 16 begins a new section. If you're here for the first time tonight, I, I want you to know there's a sense in which uh, you, you came on a wonderful night uh, because we do it launch into a new section. Um, Verse 16 is an announcement of the theme of this entire epistle. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll be spending the next uh, seven years or so together uh, in the book of Romans. Um, but, but I'm telling you, you're going you're gonna to get tired of this. You're going to get tired of this. Well, I hope not. But you'll get tired of it. You'll, you'll see this theme worked out again and again and again and again by this master logician uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, in verse 15, Paul says that he is ready to preach the gospel in Rome. And then in verse 16, he launches into it <laughs> in, in full force. Uh, the theme of the apostle, ladies and uh, excuse me, the theme of the epistle is, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's not, uh, the theme is not so much his lack of shame. The theme is, is the gospel. And then in verse 17, you get one of the most succinct summaries of that gospel ever to be found in the New Testament. If you want to pick out a verse that is a marvelous summary of the epistle to the Romans, it would have to be verse 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And then he summarizes it very briefly for in it, that is in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then in, in verse 18, uh, he begins to work it out in masterful detail, uh, in laborious detail, in repetitive detail. But the theme 
is this gospel that he summarizes for you in verse 17. I, I, I do want to mention just a little brief historical note, because if you've never heard this story, you need to hear this story. I, I've used it several times. But historically, I, I hope you realize that it's, it's verse 17 that plays a, a role in the Christian church like very few verses anywhere. Um, you might know the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a struggling Roman Catholic uh, monk who um, was overwhelmed with the terrors of God and the wrath of God. And one, on one occasion, he was walking back from something and lightning struck very close to him and almost hit him and knocked him into a ditch. And, and um, uh, in, <clears throat> in the next few days, it was his turn to uh, lead the, the, the monastery in, um, uh, in mass. And he couldn't bring himself to do it. He could not bring, because he was so terrified at the wrath of God that uh, he could not bring himself. And, and, and at one point, they were about to kick him out of the monastery. And, and um, a few weeks or months later, I don't know how long a period passed, but he visited Rome, hoping that he would get some relief for his soul and the terrors that consumed him. Um, and he, he visits the, the St. Peter's Cathedral, and um, there in St. Peter's was purportedly a, a section of stairs which were called the Scala Sancta. Those stairs were supposedly the stairs on which Jesus stood in his trial before Pilate. Those stairs, supposedly, had been flown to Rome by angels and had been uh, the, the, and included in the cathedral there in Rome because of the angels uh, airmailing them, uh, these, these steps, uh, to, to Rome so that the, the, the cathedral could use them. Well, Martin Luther is climbing up the Scala Sancta. At the top of the Scala Sancta is a spot that is supposedly, underneath it, contains a drop of the blood of Jesus. And in, of course, Roman Catholicism, particularly at that period, where purgatory was so uh, such, a real, uh, such a reality for Roman Catholics, I, I guess it still is, but anyway, you could, you could whittle off years in purgatory if you, if you climbed up step by step, arriving at the top to kiss this plate that underneath was the drop of Jesus' blood. By the way, I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. If you've ever read uh, his uh, Roland Bainton's book, Here I Stand, the story's contained in there. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> he is, he's on his knees, and he's going up step by step and kissing every step as he goes. <clears throat> he gets to the top, or close to the top. I'm not sure exactly where he is, but it sounds better to say the top. Um, <clears throat> he, he, he climbs to the top of these stairs, and the text that begins to thunder in his consciousness is Romans 1.17. Actually, just the last Old Testament quote. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And it was there, hearing this over and over and over in his consciousness that it is said that he picked up his robes, ran down those stairs, headed back to Wittenberg, 
and the Protestant Reformation was underway. Is that not neat? As a result of the text that we're about to handle, actually, we're not going to handle it tonight, but we did read it. The just shall live by faith. Well, anyway, in these two verses, verses 16 and 17, ladies and gentlemen, we get the foundation for just about everything that we believe as evangelicals. Um, what you get in these two verses, and of course Paul works out with arduous detail, um, we, we get a foundation for our opposition to, to every attempt known to man to justify himself by their works. Maybe I didn't say that very well. What, what you get in these two verses is the grounds and foundation for, for our opposition against all attempts on the part of man to justify himself by his works. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, if, you, if you consider yourself an opponent of, um, of the cults, for instance, it is because of truths contained in these two little verses that we oppose that. Um, if you have relatives, loved ones, who still are thinking that they're good, moral people, and you, and you yourself wonder, how could God ever prevent them from entering? Because there's such, I know they don't, they, don't, they don't have this commitment to Jesus like us, but they're such good, moral people. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason that we stand so firmly against such a thing is the foundation, or the foundation for that is laid right here in these two verses, and as I said, will be worked out in great, masterful detail by the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> he begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, I, I have to tell you that some were even people that Paul had ministered to. You might remember that um, in one of his pastoral epistles that he writes to Timothy and he tries to tell him to, to not be ashamed. Listen to this. Therefore, he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings, etc. That's addressed to, to Timothy. Timothy is one who had succumb to a certain kind of shame or embarrassment to his position as a, um, as a follower of this Christ. In fact, he also says, Paul says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. M my point is, ladies and gentlemen, this shame that Timothy was guilty of is brought on by a certain, a certain fear and, and I, I, I think it's safe to say that Satan tempts us all in that way. Um, I don't know whether, whether how many of you are in grace groups. I wish, I would love to think that all of you are in grace groups. But um, we, in our grace group, which I, I just absolutely adore, um, we're studying Pilgrim's Progress. And, and I think it was the last time that we were together, there's a section, there's a chapter entitled Apollyon. And Apollyon, of course, is a, is a name for Satan. And, and Christian runs into Apollyon on the, on the road to uh, uh, Canaan. 
and um, Apollyon enters into a dialogue with Christian, and he says, and, and Christian says, I'm a follower of this Christ. And, and Apollyon says to Christian, uh, I am uh, an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I'm just, Apollyon looks, I mean, the devil looks at a, at a Christian and says, I'm an enemy of your prince. I hate his person, I hate his laws, and I hate his people. And there's a certain uh, trepidation that comes over Christian by hearing that. Well, what I'm saying or suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that Satan tempts us all um, to be ashamed of the gospel by trying or seeking to engender a certain measure of fear. The world ridicules, ladies and gentlemen, um, what historic Orthodox Christianity stands for. It always will. Um, and Paul is pleading with Timothy not to be ashamed, even though the world does ridicule his position. And Paul begins by saying, I'm not ashamed of that position. Why, why is it that the world is so in opposition to this, this Christian position? Well, several reasons, I guess, ladies and gentlemen, but I guess the, the primary one, the primary offense that Christianity has for the world is its exclusivity. You know, I've said this from the pulpit once, but um, I often marvel that Dr. Laura can get away with things on the radio. She can say things about moral failure and everything that the Christian church gets bombed, just gets attacked for saying. But people just love Dr. Laura. But the difference in Dr. Laura and the position of the Christian church is Dr. Laura never pleads for exclusivity. We do. We say that not all roads lead to heaven. That's what they say. We say there's only one road, and they can't stand that. They also don't like um, our emphasis on denial of self. Gang, um, those of you in the corporate world know that, uh, you know, they'll tell you, you're never going to get anywhere unless you believe in yourself. And the, and the New Testament is asking us to deny self. They don't like that emphasis. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think another reason the world is so in opposition to, to the gospel is because the gospel and Christianity um, takes such a firm stand against sin, and the world loves its sin, and we get in the way. We're party poopers. We, we rain on parades. And so because of, of those and perhaps other reasons, the world is ready to persecute the, uh, the Christian position. Indeed, they are. <clears throat> and, and that can create a measure of fear and thus a measure of shame, embarrassment. Um, I say to you this, my friend. A good test as to what is the true gospel is this. If you want to know what the true gospel is, then just ask yourself this. Does the natural man take offense at what you're saying? <clears throat> because um, if you find the natural man praising what is preached or the preacher, watch out. Because the natural man has never loved, has never identified with the preaching of the gospel when it's 
properly and rightly preached. It, it, the, the world loves Christ preached as an ethical hero or some kind of problem-solving therapist or some kind of super psychologist. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, there is even a way to preach Christ crucified and, and to make it appealing to the world. You can, you can say that he died to show us what sacrificial love was or some kind of model for sacrificial love like uh, uh, Jesus Christ superstar or, um, uh, you know, you can even do that and the world will, will applaud. But ladies and gentlemen, when this gospel is truly preached, it will always arouse antagonism. There, um, it, I guess you can see, I hope you can see, that that's, that's the reason that there's such a temptation. Such a temptation to keep our mouths shut and, and be uh, cloaked or covered in our own shame or embarrassment. And that's the temptation that, that I think Satan presents to all of us, gang. Um, now, if you, like Paul, can say, I am not ashamed of this gospel, then I've got another question for you. If you are one that says, well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, then I want to ask you, why aren't you ashamed? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of people who believe in cultic um, uh, positions, and they're not ashamed either. But why are you not ashamed? And, and I, I'm suggesting that the only reason that any of us can answer aright is the way Paul puts it. The only reason that any of us shouldn't be ashamed is the reason that Paul gives. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because or for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The reason that Paul had no sense of shame, the reason that Paul is not ashamed of that gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is because he understood it to be the, the God-designed way by which men would be saved. He couldn't dream of being ashamed of something like that. It's God's way of saving men, and that's good news. I'm, I'm certainly not going to be ashamed of something that God has provided for the redemption of men. Um, now, gang, um, this gospel that Paul is about to define, um, it, is, it is not a message that encourages um, self-effort. It, it is th this gospel that Paul's not ashamed of, is primarily an announcement. It is announcement of, of something that God has done in order to save sinful men. It is not proclaimed so that you can race out and try harder. The gospel that, that is so gripping to Paul is an announcement. It's a declaration. And we'll see that in just a minute. It's a declaration about something God has done. Not an encouragement for you to go do more. Um, <clears throat> it is this God who accomplishes the work of salvation, and that's what Paul is so thrilled about. 
I, I might say just just in kind of a quick addition. What do you think this book is? A a, uh, a nice collection of moralisms or a description of an ethical system? You know, um, I have in the past done more of this, um, but in my early days as a Christian, I was frequently engaged in sharing my faith, uh, knocking on doors, going out once a week, finding somebody that would let us in and talking to them about the gospel. And, um, you know, we'd carry on the little chit-chat stuff in the beginning, and, um, and, and then it would get time to talk about, you know, serious religious stuff. And, and um, I would say something like, well, you know, the Bible says, and, and more than I like to remember, uh, the response would be, oh, wait, 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 wait there, uh, Jimmy Young. Uh, wait just a second. You, you don't understand. I don't believe that Bible. And I would say, well, well, that's fine. Uh, tell me this. In, in your understanding, what is the central message of this book? What do you understand? Uh, have you ever read it? Oh, no, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. Could you tell me, in your understanding, what is the central message of this book? Well, it's a, it's a book that tells you, you know, how you're supposed to live, and it's a book that tells you, you know, what's good and what's bad and what's right and wrong and evil, and you know. My point in that little vignette, ladies and gentlemen, is to say that's not what this book is. And I would often look at those folks and say, my friend. You had misunderstood the entire message of the Bible. How could you reject its message when you don't even understand what it says? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a book that contains a collection of moralisms. What this book is, is an announcement. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation. A proclamation. Hey, folks! God, God did something. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the substance of what he did, that's the gospel. Not some kind of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, some kind of effort at self-improvement. No. The gospel, ladies and gentlemen, of which Paul was not ashamed, is an announcement, it's a proclamation of something that God has done. Now, if you look at the text, just real quickly, we're going to mention one word and then we're going to close up shop. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. If we could come back next week, we'll maybe look a little bit at that power stuff. But I, I want you to concentrate on the word salvation because, ladies and gentlemen, that is the word of the New Testament. Uh, of all the things that we think this book contains and the messages that it has for us, it has to do with that word, salvation. And to, to understand that word, you've got you to grasp a couple of things. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, if you think salvation means that 
that you get to go to heaven or that it's forgiveness, then you don't understand the word. Um, to, to under, I guess what you have to do is grasp what took place in the Garden of Eden. Um, because salvation is, is the deliverance of man from the consequences of what took place in the, in the Garden of Eden. The thing that was so disrupted by the entrance of sin, salvation addresses that. It goes back and restores all the damage that sin did in Eden. And, and I might point out for those of you who struggle with the historicity of, of the Garden of Eden, if the Garden of Eden does not describe a historical event, then, very honestly, salvation is not even needed. Because what salvation does is restore things. It, put things, it, it puts things back in the order that they were in before sin entered. Now, um, that, that deliverance of man from the consequences of the fall has always been understood, and I think can rightly be understood, as having three dimensions to it, ladies and gentlemen. This salvation that we're talking about. Um, it is a deliverance from the guilt of sin. Indeed it is. Um, the salvation that we're going to talk about for months is something that delivers us from the wrath of God. Um, what my sin deserved, salvation delivers me from that. So it delivers me from the... It eliminates the wrath of God on me and delivers me from, from, the, from the guilt of my sin. But that's not all. It also delivers me from the power of sin, gang. And, and that's where we're all struggling. I, not maybe all of us, but... This gospel doesn't simply say, get Jesus, we'll stick a ticket to heaven in your pocket, we'll spray you with a coat of asbestos, and everything will be swell. No, ladies and gentlemen. That is only one dimension of this grand word. Uh, the struggle that most of us are having now is <laughs> the blasted habits that we developed as non-Christians. <clears throat> Probably shouldn't do this, but let me just assure you that my announcement on Sunday morning has had numerous takers. Numerous. More than I ever dreamed. Now, I'm, all I'm saying is, what we're, what we're wrestling with is, is not simply a, being delivered from the, from the guilt of our sin and being delivered from the wrath of God to come. What this salvation does is deliver us also from the the bondage that we were in when we, before we met Christ. It's working that out in us, ladies and gentlemen, and moving us slowly out of that slavery. 
and and then in, a, in another sense, it's not only a deliverance from, from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. There is an interesting word. I don't know if you can find this real quick, but it's in uh, 2 Peter. Um, and, and this is, um, and we'll quit with this. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. If you can find it, it, it says simply, um, let me read verse 3 too. Um, let me read verse 2 too. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Here we are. By which have been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped, here it is, the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, guys, um, I, I have to wrestle with the sin nature even when, when Satan's not tempting me. Um, there are all kinds of temptations that I, I must overcome because of habits that I developed. But even with him, when he's not, there is a corrupting influence of sin, a pollution. You know, um, I, I think I've said this to you before, but I, I came into the Lord when I was 22. Um and um, had a very foul mouth. The only, pro- I mean, the, the, the biggest problem, in addition to my f- foul mouth, was it was a very loud foul mouth. Um, my epithets um, could be heard, and expletives could be heard above everybody else's. Well, they were saying the same things. But um, but mine were just more easily heard. Um, but I want you to know, um, I, I'll even tell you another story. Um, I'd been a Christian about a month. Have I ever told you this story? <laughs> Stop me if I have. Um, <clears throat> I, and one night, my wife and I went to Woolco. They're out of business as a result of me. Um, <laughs> We went down to Woolco's on the corner of uh, Commercial Boulevard and Dixie Highway in, for, in Fort Lauderdale. And um, <clears throat> there was an album that I wanted. It was a, um, it was a Carole King album. You remember it? It's too late. Yeah, you remember that. Um, <clears throat> and I, I was really digging Carole King, you know, and uh, this was in uh, 1970. And I wanted that album, and all their albums were on sale, except Carole King's. So you know what I did? I took the sales sticker off of the sale album, and I put it on the Carol King one. I want you to know I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I hadn't, I mean, I, I hadn't been a Christian. Uh, all, all I'm trying to say to you is giving up thievery and, and uh, a foul mouth was pretty, did I have cats for before? I told you that one before. Um, that was pretty easy. It didn't take long to give up those things. It really didn't. I, I haven't said a, a, a uh, unacceptable word in a long time. Three or four weeks. <laughs> Just a joke. Um, but you know what, guys? That's not what I'm wrestling with. I'm not wrestling with the, the, the bondages that I, that I used to have. I don't have that, but that's not the problem anymore. 
And for some of you it is. I understand and I'm not trying to make light of that. But I'm, I'm wrestling with the corrupting influence of sin that's still down there where whether or not Satan has anything to do with it. It's a part of me. Stuff like envy and pride that corrupts me, ladies and gentlemen. This salvation is not simply designed to rid me from the wrath to come. Not only the guilt of my sin, ladies and gentlemen, but the power of my sin and the corrupting influence of sin. I'm getting delivered. That's what this salvation does. One of them takes place in the past. I am delivered from the guilt of sin. The other two are taking place. Actually, I'll have to say this. The third one won't take place in, in completion until glory. And that's when God will set everything back to its pre-fall state. One other thing, I'm finished. Um, if you've never, well, actually, I, I shouldn't misrepresent myself. I've read portions of John Milton's great uh, work, Paradise Lost. You do know, don't you, that that wasn't the only great work he wrote. There was a sequel. You didn't know that. Paradise Regained. There was a paradise lost, ladies and gentlemen, because of the entrance of sin and the ravages on all of us. It's this grand word salvation that tells us paradise is restored. How, ladies and gentlemen, can we possibly be ashamed of that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, because that gospel is the power of God and his salvation. We'll look at the other part of the verse next week. If you're in the choir and you're in a meeting, you need to go. <clears throat> Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for this great message that is our privilege to study and, and uh, understand and embrace and promote and disseminate. Oh, God, forgive us if we, like Timothy, have, have, because of the temptation that Satan will level at us, we have uh, grown ashamed. Uh, ashamed of this message that has made us new people. So many of us can look back at those days when... Um, there was such a, a hold that sin had on us. And now things are different and becoming more different every day. What a great gospel. What a great salvation in Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that uh, from uh, this small portion of the 
of the household of faith, that you'll find a grand number of folks who can say along with Paul, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's that announcement of God's righteousness that has made me brand new. Indeed, it is the power of God for, the, for salvation of them who believe. Father, uh, we believe because you in kindness opened our eyes to see the beauty of that gospel. And we glory in it tonight, and I pray that you will help us all deliver, uh, deal with not only the corruption, the corrupting power and influence of sin, but also those habits that we, that we started years ago and that still so control us. More and more, O oh God, give us the freedom that is ours in Christ. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Thank you and good night. See you next week.